Last week on the programme, we explored the problems. During a person's lifetime now, they eat 35,000 more meals. Peak water is being reached currently, and, you know, if we're not careful, we're going uh, to run out. There could only be less than 50 years of topsoil left. So this week, we examine the possible solutions that could help tackle climate change. It's up to us as farmers not only in this country but throughout the world, to get on top of this and say, right, this is what we're going to do to, um, to alleviate these problems. More on that in a moment. First, though, some good news for our beet growers. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. Good morning. Yes, it's actually double good news for beet growers, really. We'll hear from Simon Leeds at British Sugar in a moment. But the rain this week has certainly helped with the crop. It's uh, been a really dry start to the year, and that has been having an effect in the fields. Um, Around 10 days ago, I was out with Andrew Ward at Lednam recording a a longer piece that we're running uh, a couple of weeks' time. We'll run it over the bank holiday weekend on the dry conditions and looking at the ban on neonics, what's being done to help wildlife, that kind of thing. Uh, But while we were there, we went into one field of sugar beet where, really, uh, we almost did a rain dance to try and help things along. This was what it was like 10 days ago before the rain of this week. We're stood in this sugar beet at the moment. It's on quite heavy soil. You can see the rows nicely down the field. Um, but where we're stored you can see here we've got plants every seven inches and all of a sudden here look in front of us with a gap there that you can get your foot between there so there's a plant missing there and then you go further along another plant missing and everywhere you see a gap uh, there's plants missing and like that row there there's, there's a couple of plants missing now whether these plants will come whether they'll germinate if we get a rain they will but it was similar to last year that you'll get different growths of, of, of sugar beets you'll have sugar some sugar beet will be nice and big and will be like large lettuces come into june and then you'll have other sugar beet will be a lot smaller and probably at the four leaf stage so so the drought is really affecting i think spring crops for us more than uh, more than winter crops so these the, these gaps here they, they are directly because of the, the weather we've had so far this year exactly that's all it's to do with so here we've we've done sugar beet a little bit different this year we got a direct drill in um to we just worked the top very lightly it was cultivated with our with our simba solo which are discs and tines very early last august and this is how we get our heavy land to perform now uh, for us in the spring so it was worked very early last year left over the winter it was sprayed a couple of times with glyphosate uh, roundup between then and putting the sugar beet in and, uh, and then we lightly worked the top just before the drill arrived and then we had one of these drills we had a Vardastat Tempo uh, drill that actually puts a lot of pressure on, on, on the um, ground and it puts the seed, it forces the seed into where some drills wouldn't put the seed and so actually this is why we've got quite a high percentage already because the seed went into moisture but where the gaps are it, it's just obviously there was a lump of soil there and we need more rain now to help those to grow. Well, as I say, more on the conditions with Andrew Ward in a couple of weeks' time here on the uh, farming programme. But it's uh, fair to say the rain this week has helped. On Wednesday, it was pouring down, and I went to the uh, New York factory of British Sugar to get the very latest from Simon Leeds. Hello, Sean. Hello. Yeah, good to see you again. So let's start with the weather. Mm. I think uh, we all like to talk about the weather. <laughs> so dry and cold, I think, sums up the last few weeks, really. Um, but the amazing Easter weekend lulled us all into that sort of false sense of security that, that, that spring had arrived and warm weather was here. But the last two weeks have been definitely colder. Good news is that aphids will struggle to fly in these conditions. Um, but the bad news is that the current temperatures are not conducive to rapid crop development, so some warmth now would be, would be welcome. 
And then the rain, or the lack of it until today, so we sat here on Wednesday and I think we've had about 10 mils here at the factory today, so that's that's good. Uh, uh, but that lack of rain has been a feature now for some time and we really could do with a few days of warm, steady rain. And that doesn't just apply to sugar beet. I mean, you know, our farmer audience will know that that applies to all crops uh, that they're dealing with. The, the beet crop's not yet using a lot of water, but it would help crop management and really set us up for the next, you know, next few weeks. But today is really good news, so... Yes, we like that. A few more days like today would be all right, wouldn't Fantastic. it? Fantastic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'd love that. Um, as I've said in the last couple of updates, so just really thinking now about the crop that's in the ground, the key challenge this year is growing without the use of neonicotinoid seed treatments uh, and the impact this has on our ability to control aphids. And what the aphids do is carry a, a virus disease into the crop, which turns it yellow, and that has a, uh, can be very detrimental to yield. So it is a challenge. But the good news is that uh, due to the combined efforts of British Sugar, NFU Sugar and the BBRO, we've successfully applied for an emergency authorisation for the use of a product called Biscaya. And this combined with uh, Topeki, which is already approved, gives us the option, if required, for a three-treatment control programme of aphid. So that's, that's good news. So I guess, you know, when to spray is what I hear you ask. Um, so it's important that uh, to make sure that we use these these products uh, carefully. That we that you do monitor your crops regularly, counting aphids on ten plants across each field every week. And I would suggest that's a minimum. Do check in the fold of leaves, in the heart leaves, and on the underside of leaves. If you can find one wingless green aphid before plants, then you need to spray. And this applies up to the twelve leaf stage. So once the crop's got twelve uh, true leaves, it will then uh, withstand uh, feeding and infection. Also, as I said before, it's not too late to destroy old beet spoil heaps, which will act as a reservoir for overwintered aphids coming into the crop and bringing virus into the crop. So if you've still got those on your farm, I would urge you please to get those uh, cleaned up. Uh, the BBRO, the British Beet Research Organisation, they've got a network of 60 aphid water traps up and running. And these are little yellow water traps that trap, they're like flowers, and they trap the aphids in, and the aphids uh, get, get uh, drowned in the water. And what that allows us to do is to monitor the aphid build-up. And if you want to see the results for that, go to the BBRO website, uh, and they've got an interactive map on there so we can monitor the aphid build-up. That site also carries a wealth of information around aphid and virus control, so make use of that. Um, also make use of your local British contract manager. They're out and about, you know, as we speak, monitoring fields and will only be too pleased to offer the latest advice. And obviously there's the BBRO weekly bulletins that come out. So a wealth of information to help you uh, in, your, in your sort of efforts to control the aphids and the virus. Uh, lastly, and away from the field uh, where homegrown sugar is produced by 3,000 growers in the eastern counties, I'm delighted to say that as from June this year, you'll be able to buy Silver Spoon's homegrown sugar in Tesco stores the length and the breadth of the country. So make sure you keep your eyes open for it. Oh, it's good news, isn't it? Something really you've wanted for positive. a while. Yeah, I mean, it's just fantastic to, you know, supporting this amazing homegrown industry. So we're really, really excited about that. Excellent. Well, we'll go looking in the shops and uh, we'll keep a check on the weather as well. And we'll speak to you in about a month's time. Thanks, Thanks Sean. Thank you. Cheers. Simon leads there with that good news, not just a bit of rain, though more's needed, but also that welcome confirmation of the new contract with Tesco.
Our agronomist Sean Sparling has been watching the weather very closely, as you might imagine. I guess you welcome that uh, Tesco news as well, Sean. Morning. Yes, morning, Sean. I've only got one thing to add to that, and that is what the devil has taken you so long, Tesco's. Um, Right, anyway, moving on to agronomy then. It's been a very interesting week of weather on many fronts, not least because we now seem to have had a sufficient amount of rain to quell even the harshest and most fevered moaner out there in the field about the dry. Um, The fact that up until the end of last week we'd only just had four inches of rain since Christmas Eve, we've now taken a good inch this week in most places and I can already hear some people who were moaning about how dry it was uh, now moaning about how wet it is and it soon wants to stop. And that sort of sums up our problem in agriculture really because it's very, very much governed by the weather. We need the right amount of rain at the right time, but we often get the wrong amount of rain at the right time or the right amount of rain at the wrong time. It's very rare we get the right amount of rain at the right time, and that is what's happened this week. And the reason I say that is because it's been cold as well. So we've had seven, eight, nine degrees if we're lucky this week. And because all of all of the crops will produce leaves based upon filicron, the heat, it is heat and temperature, which encourages leaf emergence. When you get a week of six, seven, eight and wet, wet conditions, nothing changes in the field to speak of because it's too cold for things to grow and produce leaves. So last week, when we had odd plants in fields of winter barley putting out their awns, it's still only odd plants with their awns out. Where we had the flag leaf out two or three inches on some of these wheats, they're still only two or three inches out. Where we had sugar beet at two leaves, it's still two leaves. Linseed just emerging, still just emerging. But the same goes for the weeds because things like polygonums, the bindweeds, the fat hen, the persicarias, all of those polygonum weeds and a lot of the dicots need temperature in order to emerge and because it's been cold and wet we haven't had any real change in the volume of weed burden in any of these fields or indeed the level of crops so we haven't missed anything this week we've actually only gained because we've had some very very welcome rain so as you drive around you see crops that are looking a little bit hungry still a lot of fertilizer scorch out there this year Um, a lot of that is because we've had high winds these crops have been bruising and bashing about then you go and put liquid fertilizer on them and it's like putting napalm across them and some fields are absolutely terribly hit but they will grow back and if you think that the leaf which is being hit hardest is probably leaf three in most of those fields If you take a winter wheat plant, the ear and the bitter stem below the ear contributes about 22% to yield from photosynthesis, what it contributes. The flag leaf contributes about 43% to yield. Leaf two contributes about 23% of yield. Leaf three contributes between three and 7% of yield and leaf four contributes about 3% of yield. So if you damage leaf three, it's not the end of the world because it's only somewhere between 3 and 7% of the yield. It's if you start damaging leaf 2 or the flag leaf that you start to potentially damage your own crop yield. So just be very, very careful out there, particularly with liquid nitrogen fertilizer. It might be worth watering them down. Certainly keep your pressure down, keep your forward speed low if that's what increases your pressure, and make sure the whole boom and every nozzle on that boom is operating correctly because a lot of fertilizer damage around the county this week apart from that sugar beet not really 
too much to talk about in sugar beet. Bit of flea beetle damage out there. We're starting to see a little bit of that in the field. But because things aren't really growing that quickly because of the soil temperatures being low, on the top of the wolds they were about 6 degrees on Friday morning. On the bottom of the wolds around 7 degrees. That's really not very warm. When you think below 5 degrees, things going to shut down and do very little. And that is the reason the crops aren't growing away from the flea beetle damage in linseed. Why the pea and bean weevil is still causing damage because the crops aren't growing away from it so all of these things come into play and that goes for sugar beet and flea beetle as well keep your eyes on it because as soon as it warms up it may well solve its own problem because the crop will start to grow away from that damage but monitor very carefully out there because things at the moment are not moving and pest attack can cause significant issues in a very very short space of time but you know what isn't that the fun of farming (laughs) fun indeed Uh, that's sean sparling of sparling agronomy services Next, climate change. Last week on the Farming Programme, we heard from Andrew Brown and his trip to Tasmania and the International Farm Management Congress. Now, one thing Andrew mentioned in passing raised a few eyebrows, including from some of you actually listening in Australia. Just didn't realise how far this programme reaches. Uh, Andrew quoted a speaker at the Congress who claimed that every farmer in Western Australia is on antidepressants. Now, clearly, that was one speaker's exaggerated view, making a point, really, as to how they've been suffering down under. We should maybe have clarified that um, a bit more. Not all are suffering, though. Uh, One of our Aussie listeners proudly got in touch to say, you know, we're doing all right, thanks, Sean. Uh, An average net profit last year of $300,000. Thank you. (laughs) That's good to know, Richard. And thank you for getting in touch. And thank you for listening down under. Now, one thing we can all agree on is that the Congress did highlight a number of issues facing the planet at the moment, as Andrew mentioned, from soil erosion, quality water supplies and a shortage of food as the population of the planet grows. So those are the problems, the issues. What might be the solutions, though? Well, Andrew Brown has a few ideas. People do band these the statistics around, but it's up to us as farmers not only in this country, but throughout the world, to get on top of this and say, right, this is what we're going to do to um, to alleviate these problems. I mean, we need to be much more savvy with water in this country, I think, to start with, because I did some research on um, water available water per capita a few years ago, and it turns out the UK is quite a long way down the list, believe it or not, even though it rains a lot here, because we don't capture it and utilise it. I mean, if you, go, if you look at something like Australia or Israel... They're much higher up the list than we are, even though they're really, really hot, dry countries, because they know what to do with it. They don't waste it. So, you know, that, this is another thing that we should be looking at, because, if it, I mean, climate change is, is, is quite clearly a problem and is happening. And that, that, that was another thing that came out of the conference as well, that, that, you know, everyone was saying, you know, climate change is real. All this nonsense that, you know, people say it's not real. It's just not, not that it's utter rubbish. So um, we need to get our act together here as a country that does have quite a lot of rain, to make sure we capture it and don't waste it and, you know, treat it more like a precious resource just than a throwaway commodity. And you could say the same about food as well because food is, in this country, I think, is it the third cheapest in the world after America and I think it was Singapore, wasn't it? Yeah, so... food waste, isn't it? There is. I mean, one, talking about Singapore, we, um, in the Northern Territory, we we went on a a day trip and um, the guy said, we're just going by so-and-so cattle station, can't remember the name, and he said it's actually the size of the country of Singapore. And uh, he said, bear in mind that there's, uh, was it, was it there's the four and a half million or something live in Singapore, or five million, whatever the figure, it may even be more than that. Millions of people live in Singapore, 
and the population of this cattle station, which was the same size as the country of Singapore, was four. <laughs> so that puts into perspective the, the scale of, of Australia, you know. So uh, it, it is unbelievable, and that, that's the thing I really... Well, it's really difficult for, for, for countries, uh, a compact, highly populated country like ours, to get your head around, is the fact that it's so incredibly vast... The guy Julian Cribb, who was an Australian guy, who was, who was really interesting, was saying about um, how synthetic food will become more and more popular as it as it gets uh, as it gets cheaper to produce. But a lot, a lot of people are, sort of throw their hands up in horror about synthetic food. But most people are quite prepared to wear synthetic clothes on their skin, next to their skin, all day, and are quite prepared to take synthetic medicines. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just a matter of getting your head around the fact that, that it's OK to eat these things. And another very interesting fact was that in the world there are 29,500 edible plants, of which we only utilise 200. So there's a massive resource out there that we could be farming, and we need to get on top of that, to, you know, to, so we can utilise more of those um, 29,000, because what's that? Isn't that 1% or something of, of, the, um, of the available plants that we could be using? You know, and things like algae could be used to make food or animal feed or plastics or fuel. You know, the, the, it's, it's almost unlimited. But you've got to put the money in, obviously, to, um, to the research to be able to do this. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to be complacent with a, with a full stomach, isn't it? I say we've got to find those, like you say, find those opportunities. Mm. But then they need researching to work out the best way of doing it. I guess. Yeah, and without the um, the money being put into research, then that, then that will be very difficult because the um, Australian equivalent of the um, AHDB, which uh, the AHDB is funded by a levy, as you produce a ton of wheat or a sheep or a lamb or a, a, some beef, that that is all match funded in Australia by the government. So for every pound that goes in from a levy payer they, they the government in australia is putting an extra pound in as well so you know that really doesn't happen here does it food for thought quite literally that's uh, rutland's andrew brown i'd love to know your views on the climate and the possible solutions that uh, andrew's mentioned i'd also love to know just where you're listening to the program as well do get in touch whether you're in the uk or down under uh, you can do it through our website and uh, social media thanks for now andrew brown now, someone else who has strong views on tackling climate change is the adventurer Jason Lewis. He's credited as the first person to circumnavigate the globe by human power. And as well as being an award-winning author, he's also a strong campaigner for sustainability. He was at the University of Lincoln in the week and he spoke with Sam Perdue. Well, I think uh, diversification is a big one. I mean, I know that there's a big push in this country now and it's actually, some of it's been inspired from North American farmers of uh, conservation agriculture. So looking at um, not just growing monocrops, but gr- growing different species of crops within, you know, on, on your property, on your land. So that's one thing. And, and now it is becoming financially viable to do that whereas previously maybe it wasn't because of you know the large subsidies that uh, that, that these large monocrops typically have enjoyed in in the past um, uh, so that's one thing but also I think uh, as far as the meat and dairy industry as you pointed out it is it is um, uh, responsible for quite high figures in terms of greenhouse gas emissions 14 to 18 um, percent I think that Farmers need to think about, um, again, mitigating, uh, looking at different ways for land use. Um, we can't carry on eating 
you know, beef uh, once, twice a day, um, like we do in affluent countries, um, we do have to think about... I mean, there was an interesting report, actually, by the UN that was recently uh, released that looked at, you know, what is the ideal diet to feed 10 billion people by 2050? And it's not everyone becoming vegan. That's a little bit sort of taking it... I mean, even though my wife and I are vegan. But for the average person, it's about just cutting down. It's about reducing. It's about eating beef maybe once a, a month and having fish and chicken maybe once a week and but a lot of the protein that we that we need for that magic figure in 2050 has to come more from beans and uh, and from legumes and from plants basically that's jason lewis again your views on what jason had to say are very welcome do please get in touch we'll have the weather in a moment first our weekly catch up with the grain markets jerome fielder has the news from open field hi sean we've had some welcome rain this week with varying volumes depending on location, but crops definitely appreciated the drink. The market trade has been very quiet this week, with limited consumer demand coming forward. Especially with prices falling, consumers feel in no rush to purchase grain. May traditionally is a well-traded month, and the consumer appears to be well covered as well. So looking at wheat, the big story of the week was that Trump has ramped up pressure on China further with increased tariffs from 10% to 25% on Chinese goods. The standoff continued with China saying they deeply regret the move and stated that they will take necessary countermeasures. What does this mean for wheat markets? Well, the fear is that tariffs will weigh on the global economy and therefore demand for our commodities. This won't be helped by a USDA report which will paint a picture of adequate supplies and stocks, although 60% of this is in China. Generally, the May report is based on trend yields and acreage rather than taking into account any weather issues. Domestically, what does this mean? Well, wheat in Lincolnshire is trading in the low to mid-150s for May and June. If we are short of wheat, we will not know until mid-June, which is too late for many to wait. Milling premiums are lifting, as Group 1 prices are not falling at the same rate as feed wheat values. New crop values have not dropped to the same extent as old crop values, and harvest prices are between £133 and £135 ex-farm. The crop in the ground looks well, but still needs more rain. It would be sensible to make some sales if prices are higher than the cost of production, based on average yields. Barley values are drifting as well, with limited consumer demand and quiet export markets leading up to new crop. On to all-seed rate. The all-seed rate market has also been affected by Trump's tariff hike to China, although complete lack of selling and buying activity has left the market struggling for direction, although the politics at present is most likely to push markets lower. Bean and pea crops have benefited from the rain, although new and old crop trade remains thin. Now for your ex-farm values. June prices are at circa £151 to £155, with Group 1 premiums at circa £20 to £25. Harvest values are £133 to £135, with November values between £138 and £140 ex-farm, depending on location. Feed barley... Trade is very thin in the lead-up to new crop, um, with harvest values looking at £113 to £115 extra farm. All seed rape values are between £297 and £300 on old crop for June. Um, August 
harvest as available is 295 to 297 pounds with prices for november 303 to 305 pounds um, for any inquiries please speak to your local open field farm business manager Thanks, John. Thank you. Jerome Fielder there at Open Field for us. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Yes, on to the weather then. And after an unsettled week, things should settle down a bit uh, this coming week, thanks to high pressure currently above the UK. That means it'll be dry, plenty of sunshine, temperatures creeping up a bit as well. Today, for example, highs at 13, the wind from the east at around 8 to 10 miles an hour. Tomorrow is sunny as well, temperatures maybe up to 15. Tuesday, a little more cloudy, but it will be warmer, mid to late teens, and the winds from the south-southeast at 5 to 10 miles an hour. Overnight lows this week, we're looking at around 4 or 5 Celsius, depending on the wind and cloud cover, and then the latter end of the week, staying much the same really, maybe a little cooler, with winds more from the east. For now, that is the forecast. A fortnight ago, we discussed the sudden changes to licensing laws, revoking three general licenses for the management of certain wild birds, leading to confusion, frustration and a fair bit of anger. Well, DEFRA has launched a call for evidence on the impacts of that decision, saying it wants to gain a clearer understanding of the implications for the protection of wild birds and especially the impact on crops, livestock, wildlife, disease, human health and safety and wider conservation efforts. Now, the problem is... It hasn't given you much time to make your views known. Indeed, the closing date for submissions is tomorrow, May the 13th. So uh, if you're at a loose end today, get your views in. Michael Gove will apparently then take a further week to consider what's submitted and will make a final decision after that. Obviously, I'll let you know what he has to say once he says it. All right, that's it uh, for the programme this week. I'll leave you to get on uh, and get your views on to uh, Mr Gove. Until we're back next week, uh, take care.